Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Araqi Voices. This is Hassan Haddad speaking to you from Baghdad. Araqi Voices is a podcast that showcases authentic perspectives and insights about current developments in Iraq. Araqi Voices is produced by 1001 Araqi Thoughts. In October 2019, the largest protests of Iraq's recent history broke out across Baghdad and the southern provinces, leading to the resignation of the Adil Abdel Mahdi cabinet and the eventual swearing-in of the Qadhimi cabinet. The government of Mustafa al-Qadhimi promised to focus on two priorities. The first, prepare for early elections that are free and fair. And the second, investigate the death of nearly 600 protesters and hold their killers accountable. One year into his curtailed term, Kadhimi's government has been able to compile a list of all 561 protesters killed between October 2019 and May 2020, but has been quiet about accountability for the killers and justice for the victims' families, with no details on who the killers are and what justice they face. This is important to note as many banners in this week's protests ask the government to identify who the killers are. Today, I will speak with Sajjad Jihad, a fellow at the Century Foundation. He is also a co-author of the recent study titled Economic Drivers of Youth Political Discontent in Iraq, the voice of young people in Kurdistan, Baghdad, Basra, and Viqar. He will be talking to us about this week's protests their timing, and the motivation that led thousands of Iraqi youth to come out to the streets and voice their frustrations. Welcome, Mr. Sajjad. Shukran. Thank you, Aziz Hassan. First, please tell us about your impressions of how this new round of protests has differed from those of 2019. I think the protest movement has undergone stages of evolution. So even before October 2019, there were protests. And Going back, you know, even before 2010, there were, there were protests as well for a variety of different reasons. Now, the October 2019 period was preceded by uh, small protests, if you remember, in August and September by higher education graduates, people with master's degrees and PhDs, who complained that the government had not provided any sort of employment opportunities for them, despite them holding these postgraduate degrees. And they were met with a very sort of stern response, if you remember at the time, by the uh, Iraqi security forces, by the force that guards the green zone. And uh, the images shocked a lot of people. You know, water cannons were used, police charging at some of these uh, essentially, you know, postgraduate students with batons. And uh, it was appalling to watch. And I think that um, led to a sense of injustice that actually the government was set against the people in, in some ways. And then this continued also in, in September 2019 in several cities, in fact, in Basra and Diwaniya and Diqar, for, again, a variety of different reasons. Some people who were previously in their positions, either as members of the security forces and were later dismissed because they, you know, they were either absent without leave or they didn't meet the necessary conditions to keep them on their contracts in the, in the Iraqi security forces or the PMF. Um, others were, for example, university lecturers who were complaining that they uh, were not giving enough credits for their work and therefore they were not being hired on proper terms and their income was uh, devalued from before. Others were sort of uh, involved in the municipal um, municipal sites throughout um, the provinces. And again, they felt that they were undervalued and uh, some of them had, had been dismissed. And same for people on contracts with the oil and gas services in, in Basra and elsewhere. And this sort of all was bubbling under the surface. Um, it was not mass protest, but it it sort of encouraged people from multiple backgrounds to, to get together. And uh, the final sort of piece that pushed people to come out and protest in a sort of a large 
uh, mass coordinated protest was the dismissal of Abdul Wahab Asadi under the government of Adil Abdul Mehdi from uh, CTS, the Counterterrorism Service. He was a popular figure, was considered a war hero, and a lot of people just felt that you know he was unfairly dismissed. Um, and he even himself, you know, he gave a few sort of short quotes on interviews saying that you know, he would rather die than be, you know, treated in a humiliating way. And I think that sense of injustice is what a lot of people got caught up with. And this led to the protests in October 2019. Um, and again, the first sort of couple of days, there, there was not a huge, it wasn't, you know, hundreds of thousands of people on the street. It was, you know, a couple of thousand. Again, a lot of people who were young and angry that they didn't have any economic opportunities, that the government did not serve them, did not work for them, that it protected the elite and worked for the elite. And the security response was extremely violent on behalf of the government forces. You know, immediately sort of protests on the 1st of October at 3 p.m., you know, by 5 p.m. we already had a couple of people who were killed. And the government sort of seemed to either not be completely in control or was allowing these events to go ahead. Uh, there were even, you know, sort of in the next couple of days, videos emerging of sort of snipers shooting at uh, protesters and and you could see people just collapsing in the street, um, being chased by security forces, for example. And then sort of after that, they took a little, took a little break, and then it began again sort of towards the end of October. And again, the government, and this time the protest grew because more and more people joined. Yes, there were some young people. Yes, there were a lot of women involved. But there were also people who had been sort of traditionally protesting for a long time now. People felt that the system was uh, unjust and unfair. And uh, the security response became even more violent. And you had your sort of tear gas canisters, your military grade being fired deliberately at people. Uh, you know, I was there and, and you could see the conditions looked like a war zone. And unfortunately, this sort of um, escalated people's anger towards sort of the government. It did lead to Adil Abdul Mehdi's resignation, but unfortunately, it's the, the problem people started to talk about was not Adil Abdul Mehdi the individual. It was the fact that the system, the the way the elites in power had set themselves up to sort of close ranks and protect themselves against this sort of pop popular anger. Um, and so individual groups that began to protest, like the teachers union, for example, who were protesting working conditions, and doctors and, and medical and healthcare workers, for example, and the young who were unemployed and didn't have much economic opportunities, they all had sort of a common cause. Yes, they were protesting about their individual sort of causes, but it began to evolve into... Uh, complaints about, you know, the government's running of the country and the political lead in general. And this has continued over the sort of uh, last two years into 2020 wow. and 2021 and demands have sort of to began to uh, evolve. People were no longer caring about just their sort of individual demands, you know, reinstate me or hire me or change my working conditions. It began to change to, we want to see a dismissal of the government. And then it moved on to, we want to see a way, uh, you know, the, the way parliament works changes. We want to see early elections. We want to see, you know, even sort of more radical calls, change into this in the system from parliamentary to presidential, and then all sorts of sort of demands start to come in, the change in the way the judiciary operates. And sort of more recently, uh, sort of this week and, and, and previous weeks as well, the protests now have turned into accountability. Uh, yes, we've maybe heading into early elections, maybe not, but people have actually started to realize that it doesn't really matter if there were elections or not, if the people who control the strings in the system are still committed to protecting the way it operates, and not holding anyone accountable, then we're just going to go back to where we were in, in 2019. And despite, you mentioned that number of, you know, over 500 protesters were killed, really, we haven't seen anyone held, in, held to account uh, during this time. And that's what one of the slogans um, in this protest, uh, at the beginning of this week, were about. Holding or asking for accountability for who, who killed these protesters and activists, some who were kidnapped, some who were still missing. 
And they were asking the government that, you know, it is time now to sort of uncover who is behind all of these. Otherwise, the, the youth are very much committed to boycotting elections and maybe stepping up, you know, their presence on the street in formal protests. And actually, I think pop- popular anger and popular sentiment is very much supportive uh, of protesters and the fact that calling for accountability is the bare minimum for what um, what we have seen in the last couple of years. Right. And I think it's it's very important that you provide that history of just how dangerous, how violent the protests were between 2019 and 2020. And so this leads to my second question as a fellow Baghdadi, how does it make you feel to see these courageous young people come out and protest knowing that they could potentially pay the ultimate price for the freedom of assembly? Yeah, I, I mean, um, I'm in awe of, of some of these young people in terms of how they conduct themselves, in terms of you know the uh, ability to coordinate under very difficult conditions. In October 2019, if you recall, the um, internet was cut off in the country. And it was very, very difficult to sort of share information, to access information, to even you know tell people what was going on. And as I said, conditions in sort of central Baghdad were, were akin to sort of a, a war zone. And elsewhere as well, you know, Basra protesters were raided almost on a sort of nightly basis by an unknown force who were allowed to enter sort of the protest site where the protest camps were and just attack protesters, burn down camps and, uh, you know, just escalate the levels of violence that protesters already seen. And uh, unfortunately, it seems that a lot of these protesters are on their own. There's no protection from the government. In fact, the opposite is more likely. Um, there is sort of sympathy from international community, but really not very much um, that people can actually feel on the ground. And then you've also got the issues with domestically, uh, so many events going on that people's attentions shift very quickly. If you recall, we've had a lot of incidents involving sort of armed groups inside the country, change in government, you know, the US-Iran standoff, and you know, several other things going on at the same time, in addition to coronavirus, in addition to the economic crisis. So sort of domestic attention also veers from time to time. And I think that's frustrating to a lot of these young people that you know they are willing to put their lives on the line. But they need more popular support. They need more people backing them. And while a lot of people empathize with the protest movement, in actual fact, the numbers haven't been huge. We don't have millions of people out on the street. And I think that's probably um, one thing that people feel a little bit um, hard done by. Uh, they're involved in protests. They're willing to you know, pay the ultimate price, as you say. But in actual fact, the numbers are not so large and not a lot of people are out there backing them and supporting them. At the beginning in October 2019, there was a lot of popular support. You know, people were donating and, you know, there was fruit and blankets and all sorts of donations were, were given sort of to keep the protest movement up. But I think, um, you know, as time has gone on, a lot of people have been exhausted by what has occurred. A lot of people may be preventing the sort of young family members from going out and joining protests because they've seen the violence and what that leads to. But I, I think the sort of underlying grievances are still there. And um, in Baghdad, you know, Living here on a daily basis, you see how hard life is for a lot of people, especially after sort of coronavirus, you know, government sort of mishandling and mismanagement of uh, you know, dealing with the pandemic. The economic conditions have become dire for a lot of young people. And you can understand why they're still willing to come out and sort of stand in the firing line, so to speak, because they really don't have many options. And I think that's the, probably the saddest thing, that somebody coming out to protest it accepts that they could die, but 
they're thinking they have no other alternative. I think that's truly tragic and something that um, is epitomizes what Iraq in 2021 is about. Now, you've mentioned, uh, you know, what it's like here on the ground. You have lived, worked, and written extensively about Iraq. How do these protests shape Iraqi political discourse? And how do they fit in the lead up to the October parliamentary election? Well, first of all, we can't be certain that elections will occur in October 2021. Uh, I think it's still sort of up in the air, maybe a 50-50. Nobody would be surprised if they pushed back into April or May 2022, which is when elections are supposed to be held anyway, sort of regular election. Um, you know, October 2019, by November 2019, Parliament already made the decision that uh, it, w- it would have early elections and would change the election law. And, you know, two years later, we're still debating whether actually we'll have elections early enough to call them early elections. And I think that's no surprise. It's sort of typical of the political response to protests. I think a lot of political parties were um, caught off guard in October 2019 about popular anchor and, you know, the power of some of these protests and what they could do to the political scene. But very soon after, I think the political parties caught up, they closed ranks, they sort of delayed any deep-seated reforms, watered down the electoral law, delayed the process by which to, to begin elections and still delaying up until now. I think they want to serve out their four-year term. I think they believe it's unfair uh, that they don't get to complete their terms, uh, MPs, at least in Parliament, and that actually um, you know, the ballot boxes decide what, what occurs, not protests and not popular anger, that ballot boxes and elections are what decides the political discourse. And then it's up to the elite to agree on the way forward. And it's not up to the people. I think this sort of attitude is typical of a lot of politicians who are essentially closed off from the real world, who have, you know, very little contact with the average person. Certainly, they don't have constituency offices. They're not meeting people on a regular basis. A lot of them are holed up in the international zone in Baghdad or they're elsewhere in Erbil, for example. They don't really have a lot of contact with the masses. They're not really understanding what occurs um, in, in Iraq on a, on a daily basis. And for them, they really care about what they hear from sort of their own uh, colleagues and their peers. And that's more, far more important to them. What they hear from other powers, such as Iran or Turkey or the Americans, they're not so much interested in what the average Iraqi thinks. Only when it comes to sort of the immediate election period, then suddenly we see politicians pop up and try to engage people because they're really keen on having their votes. But in terms of sort of um, the, the political response to, to protests, I think it's it's been extremely underwhelming and probably typical of, of the elite and the fact that they've tried to outlast protesters and believe that they can remain sort of in power and untouched by popular anger, you know, in the next few years and, and even longer. They think they can outlast any sort of protest movement and that eventually people will become exhausted and things will go back to normal in, in the way they see it. Makes sense. Now, Earlier, you mentioned, you know, the protesters and and the support that they've received and how they're perceived. Um, Many Iraqis interpreted the 2019 slogan of we want a homeland as we want a job. With the slogan this time around of who killed me, how do you think that will be translated by the average Iraqi? Yeah, I mean, so that points to, you know, what I was mentioning earlier about the sort of the evolution of the protest movement. Economic grievances are still there, certainly. And uh, a lot of people are still concerned about sort of the direction the country's heading in terms of opportunities, economic policy, and so on. But um, very specifically, the fact that, you know, despite all that has occurred in the last two years, you know, these hundreds of young people that have been killed, so the, the severe brutality of um, Iraqi forces towards protesters, really nobody's been held accountable. And I think that's an embarrassment to the state, but that's also worrying, the fact that, you know, repression is starting to kick in as a, as a policy. You know? And 
That's why protesters used the slogan, you know, they carried pictures of all these people that have been killed and asking a question, you know, who killed me? We want the government to reveal, you know, the this prime minister and the previous prime minister have, have uh, chaired committees upon committee upon committee, investigation after investigation. And yet, you know, none of that information has come to light. No, we have not found out who has been behind the killings of all these protesters and activists. Who is the orchestrator? Who is the sort of the hitman at the end? And who is pulling the strings to hide the accountability for all of these killings? I think that's it's in everyone's right to ask these sort of questions and what the government should be working to, to do to deliver, to show them, you know, that, that there is a due process, that there is a judicial system, and yet, and that the government is not going to protect the killers of, of, of normal Iraqi citizens. And unfortunately, um, I think people have felt very betrayed by the government so far that none of that has, has occurred. Um, that they have not sort of seen any accountability or transparency, and that the same sort of military commanders who were there in October 2019, uh, leading, you know, charges of, of riot police, um, interior ministry officers against, you know, protesters are still there in power today. And I think that's a, a, a sham. The fact that, you know, governments can claim that they've tried to investigate and they've, you know, opened up committee investigations into security failings, and yet the same people who were the cause of some of these incidents are still there in power today. So for me, I think it's um, that slogan is expected, and the average Iraqi sympathizes with a lot of um, you know what it was said in these protests and what people are angry about. The fact that there is no accountability is worrying. Maybe today it's accountability for protester killings, but tomorrow we could be back in a similar scenario for what occurred in 2014. How did uh, ISIS rise so quickly? How did Mosul fall? And yet very little accountability for that as well. I think that's the sort of the greater concern in people's minds, that the political lead is committed to protecting itself, and we are therefore always one step away from a disaster that no one will be held accountable for. You're right. I think that's a valid point. Now, on Tuesday, you tweeted about, quote, infiltrators in the protests carrying out orders to undermine them by encouraging violence, end quote. Orders from who, Sajjad? So after, you know, sort of October 2019, we began to see different sort of groupings in, in, in protester sites, whether in Baghdad or elsewhere. Certainly, they were the presence of, of Sadrists. Um, but also, you know, in the sort of um, period after Adel Abdelmedi's resignation, when we saw sort of two failed PM nominees, you also saw, uh, you know, people carrying protesters for one candidate or trying to push the nomination of one particular candidate in the protest sites or denouncing others. So very clearly, um, you know, there was infiltration at that time for political purposes, trying to sort of steer public support or anger towards one camp or the other. And then we saw, you know, what happened with the sort of the Blue Hats, who are Muqtada Sadr supporters in Najaf, um, in, in Baghdad as well, uh, and later on in the Iqar, where sort of once a lot of criticism was pointed towards uh, the Sadris, uh, there was a lot of response to, you know, how to end the protests. And essentially, Muqtada Sadr called on his supporters to uh, clamp down on protesters and, and, and close down these protest sites. And that's what occurred. And we saw a lot of violence then against protesters by people who were supportive of Muqtada Sadr. Uh, in Najaf, you know, people were killed, same in Baghdad and same elsewhere. And I think, and in Dikhar, it's ongoing, of course, until now. And I think that's sort of a, an indication of the fact that protesters are not completely, protests are not completely organic. They began in that way, but unfortunately, over time, You've got the involvement of security forces who are undercover posing as sort of the protesters. You've got people from various political parties also posing as protesters, you know, being involved in the protests. And um, even, you know, the most recent protests, you know, most people by and large are very civil and peaceful. And as you said, having a slogan of, um, you know, who killed me, trying to hold the government to account and, you know, marching through sort of central Baghdad 
very calmly, um, in a very civil manner. But then you had a section of, uh, of young people who were uh, bent on coming into conflict with the riot police and security forces who were trying to force their way across the Jumhuri Bridge and sort of enticing a, a response from the riot police. And that didn't feel organic. That felt, you know, very much organized. Some of these guys had Molotov cocktails and they had batons. And clearly they were there to sort of try to encourage violence. They weren't there to you know, hold the government to account. And, uh, you know, I spoke to some protesters and, and they felt, you know, very much that their lives were being endangered by this sort of group. And they didn't feel that the, that group of people were representative of protests themselves, which is why sort of protests moved out of uh, Sahar Tahrir, they went to Nasur, and then even after then they pulled out of Nasur Square because they felt that they were endangering themselves and, and other protesters by just being there because you had this group of people who were allowed to join the protests under the guise of being protesters, but who actually were there to undermine them. Now, who sent those people and what their agendas were and who did they work for? I mean, I can't say. It needs a, a proper investigation. But the fact is, you know, two years after sort of, um, you know, summer of 2019, we've still got people coming into protests who you know, carry weapons and, and try to invite a, a violent response. And the government hasn't done anything about it. It's, it's a massive concern. Uh, and protesters, it's not their job to try to make, uh, um, you know, every single person in the protest completely uh, organic and um, make sure that, you know, they're, they're properly checked. They're just trying to come out and, and protest for some of their rights, for holding the government to account. And it's the government's job to secure these protests and to prevent infiltrators being there and to prevent a violent response by right police and other forces. It's not the average citizen's job to do. And unfortunately, it's getting to a point where people feel that they can't protest because if they do people's lives are at risk. And I think that's probably what these political parties want. They want people to be so worried about their own sort of safety and, and, and the fact that they could be in danger by protesting that they stop protests. And that seems to be, you know, the ultimate agenda. And it is a, a shameful event that we are sort of moving back towards repression. You know, we talk about pre-2003 and the fact that people like freedom and rights. You know, it's it's certainly moving towards some of that direction in, in 2021 now. The fact that people feel afraid to speak out. You know, you speak out on social media, suddenly you get, you know, um, not just harassed, but the potential for being kidnapped or attacked. If you're an activist and a community organizer, we've seen what has happened with them in terms of assassination and murders. If you come out to protest, then you've seen the violence that that, that is visited upon people. And it's not just in Baghdad or the provinces, you know, same in the Kurdistan region, um, in, in sort of Ambar and Nainu and the liberated provinces, people have struggled to... Uh, protest because, you know, that's the, um, the terrorism laws and terrorism laws that they have there prevent people congregating because they're worried about if they come out and protest against sort of performance of local government, they'll be accused of being ISIS supporters and, and so on and so forth. So I think across the country, a lot of uh, people, not just young people, just the average Iraqis become very much worried about their ability to speak out freely. I think that uh, answer alone requires a, an entire episode. Now, we can't talk about Tuesday's protests without mentioning Wednesday's arrest and subsequent standoff between a faction of the Popular Mobilization Forces, the PMF, and the Special Division, which secures the international zone in Baghdad. How much of Wednesday's events were driven by a need to provide protesters with accountability or... Was it a new story to take the focus away from two newly martyred protesters? Um, so I think the, the timing was interesting of the arrest of, of Qasim Musla, I mean, and, and who he is as well, why specifically he was arrested and still being held and, and, and being questioned, and who is questioning him on where he's being held. So all of these are uh, important details. So as we said, the slogan on, on Tuesday in the protest was, um, who killed me? People holding up 
posters and, and names of those who were activists who, or protesters who were killed or murdered, assassinated, and asking sort of the government to disclose and reveal who is behind these killings because a lot of people feel that um, this information is out there. It is known and the government just sort of refuses to disclose it for political reasons. And Qasem Musla, he his arrest, there's sort of three reasons behind it. And one reason why it occurred on, one, on, on Wednesday, but there's sort of three main reasons there. And they sort of all came together at the same time um, and gave sort of Kalami the push to, to, to see his arrest. So the first is the fact that he is one of the key commanders of the PMF in Ambar and where Ainanesed base is, uh, the fact that it's come under rocket attacks you know, consistently the last couple of years, um, and the fact that, you know, despite you know, ISF being heavily present in Ambar, uh, still an unknown group is able to conduct attacks against uh, an Iraqi base that hosts U.S. forces. And I think um, the suspicion is there, and potentially there may be evidence, I don't know, that Qasem Musleh was the uh, enabler, the facilitator of these attacks. And potentially, you know, Kalami came under pressure from the Americans to sort of put an end to that by, by ordering his arrest. Uh, the second reason is that uh, Qasem Musleh is the person who controls the Iraqi-Syrian border in Ambar. And sort of some of the info that I've picked up is that he is both in conflict with um, local PMF groups and non-local PMF groups about, you know, who crosses into Syria and back, about goods being moved, about, you know, the, the shakedowns that occur there, about sort of the freedom of movement of even regular Iraqi forces and sort of element of corruption, sort of bunch of things involved there. And that his presence and his control of that border is... Um, is no longer palatable. And the fact that Abu Rif, who is the investigating officer, um, conducting these sort of, um, not trials, but investigations, um, these uh, attempts to get uh, certain people who are involved in corruption to confess, is mainly focused on corruption. He's not investigating people for terrorism. He's investigating people for corruption, high-level corruption. And the government's already claimed that they've had some successes through the committee that Abu Rif heads. And the fact that he is the one who is questioning Qasem Mosle points to the fact that his arrest is to do sort of with that element, the corruption side of things, rather than sort of the other issue about, um, you know, conducting or facilitating attacks on U.S. forces in Ain Asad. Or the third issue, uh, which, you know, people have pointed to in the past that Qasem Mosle was part of the PMF based in Karbala. He previously used to work with the um, Imam Hussein shrine security but was dismissed but has managed to retain a sort of force loyal to him inside Karbala um, the shrine authorities have tried to push him out of Karbala they couldn't and you know we've heard sort of testimony of, of, of Ahab Wesney's family the activist who was murdered in Karbala recently um, and, and others as well who've said that Qasem Musla had threatened them directly and that he was he said in a very clear and overt, overt and, and direct way that he would murder them for their criticisms um, now, I don't know if there is evidence to show that he was behind their killings. I'm not sure. You know, from what I gather, he spends a lot of his time in Ambar and, you know, he's dealing with some high-level issues. I'm not sure if, you know, he's the person that ordered a, a hit or an assassination of an activist in Karbala. It could be. I'm not sure. But I think for Kadami, that is sort of a very popular um, and very useful um, position uh, where there's a lot of anger against this person. Uh, there is an accusation that he's involved in the murder of an activist and protesters. Protesters came out on, on Tuesday demanding somebody be held accountable for the killings of Ihab Wesni and others. And, you know, 
Qasim Muslah is, is there with this accusation against him. So, you know, sort of the three reasons aligned and the timing, I think, was because of Tuesday's protest. It gave the perfect sort of reason, um, pretext to arrest him. I think there had to be some involvement from Americans at some level, either with sort of providing intelligence or support or others. But I think these three reasons are all sort of in there. Um, and for sort of sort of the immediate political responses, some people have supported Kavami's move and some of the you know popular uh, political leaders and um, politicians have, have backed him and backed sort of the defending the prestige of the state and upholding the rule of law. The international community has been sort of very supportive of Kavani's move. So obviously, you know, Fatah and, and, and groups close to the PMF have been very, very critical uh, about the way the arrest was conducted. So the arrest warrant accuses Qasem Muslah of being involved in terrorism. The committee that sort of is, is holding um, Qasem Muslah and is investigating him is to do with an executive order, uh, Amr Diwani, which is connected to fighting corruption. So there's a bit of lack of clarity. So the um, security forces um, procedures and laws dictate that the security of each sort of ministry, whether it's the MOD or MOI, or for example, PMF and others, their own security departments arrest their members rather than sort of an external agency, which isn't what has occurred. And they're very much concerned that um, you know he's being forced into confessing things that he may not have committed because he's being pressured by um, the committee that is holding him. And that's why, you know, you've seen Amri's involvement, Farah Fayyad's involvement, to try to de-escalate the situation because these groups are, um, you know, similar to June 2020, they're willing to sort of threaten the government in order to bring their member out safely and to see his release, secure his, uh, his position. And nobody wants to see that scenario where you have government on one side um, and then you have sort of PMF forces on the other and the ISF caught in the middle trying to prevent a, um, a war, so to speak, inside the green zone between these, these two sets, these two camps. And I think what's interesting is that, um, unlike June 2020, this time around, it seems the government has held firm and it still has Qasem Musla, um, under investigation. He's been held by Joint Operations Command in a, you know, secure location inside the IZ. And it looks like, you know, the PMF has, um, despite their protests, has accepted the position that Qasem Mustafa will only be released once the investigation is completed. Now, that could take a couple of days, could be a matter of weeks, and then you know, the judiciary may dismiss the case against him, it may hold, you know, uphold it, and uh, a trial will, will, um, will begin. But for the first time, I think, sort of amongst the Iraqi public, um, there is a sense that, oh, you know, the government is willing to hold someone to account. Now, obviously, there's a bit of PR here trying to shape it in, in the fact that, you know, he's being held because he killed protesters. Now, the real reason could be, like I say, involved with what's going on in Umbar. But the fact for the average Iraqi is it's the first time we can see somebody of note being held by the government, not being released, and may lead to, you know, being a cycle of sort of accountability. We don't know. It's still early days. I mean, immediately after the arrest uh, of Qasem Mosley, there was news that he was released within a few hours. And, you know, I, w I was even sort of monitoring the situation. There was a lot of misinformation. But I think, you know, the, the fact that the government has managed to hold on to him for two days is a surprise. And for the average Iraqi, maybe, maybe this is just one, um, you know, possible step. It may be a reversal. You know, maybe he'll be released and sort of things get worse. Maybe he will be um, you know, released as a hero. 
and the government will end up being disgraced. Maybe there could be a clash between the government and PMF. There's even talk of, you know, Kalmi resigning. It's, there's a lot of, you know, issues around what has happened with Qasem Muslim's arrest. But for the average Iraqi, I think accountability is extremely important. Uh, for protesters themselves, I think, you know, even if uh, he's convicted, um, it's not enough. There is, you know, a concerted effort by the security forces to clamp down on protests. Qasem Muslim is the only, not the only person who was behind that if 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 allegations against him are true there's a lot more people who need to be held to account and i think the government will find itself under pressure going forward despite what happens with Ghazan Muslim to hold more people to account okay thank you now taking a step back here the vast majority of people who took to the streets in october 2019 sought to bring about change that would improve their own lives and the lives of other Iraqis. It's clear, though, that domestic, regional, and international actors have all sought to instrumentalize this movement to advance interests that have nothing to do with the original objectives of the protesters. Hasn't that impacted the movement's broad-based support, and do you think that the movement has been politicized beyond the point of no return? So, I mean, a study I conducted last year, the one that you mentioned earlier, um, you know, we spoke to protesters in, in Basra, the Iqar, Baghdad. And some of them had participated, you know, in, in protests, you know, continuously. And eventually they'd sort of just pulled down, partly because they believed that, you know, as your question points to, that the, the protest movement was politicized, that there was infiltration, that actually this wasn't, um, this wasn't the best way to go about trying to hold the government to account and, and the political elite to account. Some were, um, dismissive of protests as a means, as something useful. Uh, with or without, you know, infiltration, the fact that, you know, what, what would protests lead to? And some were just sort of heartbroken, you know, the level of violence visited, visited upon protests, the reaction of the security forces, the fact that so many young people were killed. They just didn't believe it was worth the price paying, you know, to, to see more people injured or killed. Um, they believed that, you know, protests should end. So certainly there was a, a cross-section of opinion on that. Obviously, there were um, still some supporters of protests. They believed that, you know, it was worth the price. They could lead to results and that really they didn't have any other options. What else were they going to do? Um, opinions on participating in the political process also differed. You know, the, the majority didn't believe that, you know, entry into the political process was a viable option. They weren't supportive of participating in elections or voting. They were calling for a boycott. Obviously, some weren't. Um, and you can see those sort of splitting opinions still today. Um, but what was interesting was that um, everybody sort of had an opinion on, you know, who was trying to shape the protests, who was trying to infiltrate, who was trying to sort of move agendas in the protests and politicize them. But um, nobody sort of wanted to let go of the underlying grievances. Everybody still mentioned that, you know, regardless of what was happening, regardless of the agendas of foreign entities or domestic, you know, political um, agendas, the fact is these underlying grievances were still going to be there. They weren't going to go away, you know. Young people were still looking for economic opportunities. People were still complaining about lack of services at, at the local level. People were still decrying the amount of corruption they have to face in their daily lives. You know, they were hugely concerned about, you know, their futures, especially the younger generation and, you know, where, what, where they were going to be in five or 10 years time and the way they saw the country going sort of downhill. Um, and people protesting, you know, the lack of, um, government accountability and transparency, the fact that security forces were the ones uh, conducting violent attacks against protesters, sort of, you know, these underlying issues were not going to go away, regardless of, you know, politicization of the movement or not. 
people were still angry about these issues, these core issues. And this was something common to all Iraqis. No matter where they were, north, central, south, people were concerned about the, sort of the same issues. And I think that probably speaks for the protest movement more than anything else. No matter what everybody else tries to do, the underlying grievances are not going to go away. And I think that is probably the take-home message that, you know, political entities, foreign entities, whatever, are going to try to take advantage of the protest movement, maybe clamp down on it, maybe try to extinguish it. But they're not going to be able to touch these other underlying issues. Unless they improve their performance, unless they do more for the average Iraqi, these issues will always be there. And people will find another way, maybe more energy to come out and protest, maybe decide to even change the means by which they, you know, they want to speak out and maybe do something more about it. But, you know, until, until government changes its behavior and the political elite change the way they do things, um, that anger will always find an outlet, will always find a way. And I think, um, regardless of, how protests are conducted and, and who's involved, those issues uh, are not going to go away for the immediate, immediate future. Well, this has been a very enlightening discussion. Thank you very much, Sajad. We hope that the Iraqi people obtain justice, including the right to protest peacefully and demand transparency and accountability from their government, especially when it comes to the large-scale death of their fellow countrymen. That's it for this week's podcast. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify to receive notifications about a new episode from Araki Voices. Until next time, take care.